the island of saints and scholars and gum beans and fucking arse lickers. Money, 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 money. Seems to make the world go down, so won't you tell me why? Hello folks, welcome to the Saint and Scholar podcast. This is your weekly catch-up with me, Mick, and Colin, my American cousin, in New York. As always, we don't do social media well, so please pass the pod to like-minded souls. You can tweet us on at Saint Scholar Pod, or leave us a voicemail on anchor.fm slash saintandscholar. Please review us on Apple Podcasts. It absolutely helps, and it would be greatly appreciated. This is episode seven, and feel free to peruse our previous ramblings. Um, Yeah, so, hey, Carl, happy belated Thanksgiving, and uh, how's life? It's not too bad. Do you know who the the Pillsbury Doughboy is? I have an interesting story about the Pillsbury Doughboy. Well, (laughs) let me tell you. He's currently found himself on the boycott divestment sanctions list because his firm, General Mills, is presumably making uh, croissant and other Pillsbury Doughboy-style dough treats out of uh, illegal Israeli settlements. So he is now in violation of international law and no longer welcome on this podcast. So we <laughs> we had tried to reach out to him in the past. Uh, what's your story about... The Doughboy. Well, I guess I guess it's not that interesting. But the family who owned uh, Pillsbury or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. they lived in D.C. and they occupied the house of my uncle-in-law uh, before he lived there. And when he moved there with his wife, the whole house was full of little doughboys, little, like <laughs> little ornamental doughboys. Well, it seems kept. it seems he's always liked occupation then. <laughs> Yeah, hanging around where he's not wanted. Gosh oh, darn it. Jesus. Well, yeah. How's things in Ireland? What's new over there? Ah, fuck, look. Excuse my language. Things are all right. Um, the, uh, a rough enough weekend ahead of us. I say rough enough. Look, it is what it is. Um, we have noticed uh, over the last couple of mornings perhaps some scab on our in-lamb yos, so they will have to be treated, injected for these little mites, um, which do them damage. It's like, it's not lice, it's mites, and it's, it stops them thriving and can kill them eventually, like all their wool falls off and stuff. Um, oh, Jesus. This would never have been a problem previously, uh, but... It's a warmth or what? Uh, no, it's, it typically happens in the winter. Um, these mites get into like the hot areas of the sheep and breed and breed and breed. Ah, um, but previously it would never have been a problem because we dipped all of our sheep. But we don't dip sheep anymore really in Ireland. I mean, we've got a whole fancy dip tub that I built when I was a kid with my dad. Um, and sheep just don't sheep just don't get dipped anymore. You put, Dipped you put in this, what? You dip them in this like <laughs> toxic smelly stuff that like stops maggots uh Uh stops blowflies stops flies uh leaving like eggs on them so that they don't get maggoty or whatever now you just have this click thing where you like spray this little line of stuff and it keeps the it stops the flies lighting on them and so it's a possibility that it happens in the winter and if it does you have to treat them and so we have to treat our in lamios this 
weekend. Um, yeah, so that'll be fun, I'm sure. Yeah. It's too bad you couldn't use your stock earnings from your time at Apple to finance that operation. Why don't you tell the good people on what you may have missed out on a $10 sock stock 15, 20 years ago? Oh, man. Well, sure, look, that's that's it. Like when a lot of us, you know, youth is wasted on the young, they say, and um, opportunities were wasted on me. So when I was I was done traveling the world with my buddies and their band, um, I I came back and I, I was living in Cork and got a job offer for Apple uh, in sales. This is 2004. And um, yeah, you so they they had like the uh, the desktop that was like uh, a plastic color, but like an orange or green. Is this that era of Apple when they were doing those? Slightly, slightly after that. What they had at the time was they had the eMac, which is like exactly what you're describing, but white for education. Mm-hmm. And they had the iMac G4 had just passed by and that was the one that looked kind of like the Pixar lamp kind of thing with the bulb mm-hmm. you know it was like a really it was a wonderful mm-hmm. like cool looking computer and they had just launched <coughs> they were just launching the G5 which is the original all in one screen thing the flat screen with everything mm-hmm. in it and they had just launched the iPod mini which was a huge seller as well um, yeah so I mean I joined the sales team and Everybody in there got, you know, so you got a basic wage, which was very good. And our bonuses were ridiculous, like ridiculously good. And, you know, you're you're probably selling like five millions worth of stuff yourself as a personal individual selling to consumer and education, like not even the high end of education, like just like whatever Mm. in the year. And they offered like, you know, 15 percent of your salary in in stock, which at the time was like. I want to say $12 and they offered it at a 15% discount. And I think it was a 15% discount on the lowest price that it was in the six month window of the stock buy-in. And I did not take it. I had a lot of friends who did take it and they're very happy at the moment. But I mean, I was living the good life at the time. I had a really nice apartment in town and I had a motorbike and a car, both of which I bought with cash. You're truly footballer lifestyle. <laughs> it was a good time. I'll be honest. It was a good time. Um, I say it was a good time. It got to a point where I, I was, oh, I was so incredibly miserable in there. Just it was not good for my soul at all. Like it was, it was like a hyper competitive sales environment. And uh, like it's funny, Apple has moved entirely away from that model of sales now. But it was. Mm-hmm. They were in the, what's the term? Startups use the term. Uh, they were in like a, an aggressive growth phase, obviously, mm-hmm. like like a hyper aggressive growth phase. So they were just like ch- like high targets and they were churning out like the numbers, like the numbers were going through the roof and um, they were hiring in staff and pushing the cell and pushing the cell. And Did yeah. you have a direct phone line to the seven-year-old Chinese kid that was building the thing you were selling? And did he also get stock options or was there distinctions based on kind of the division of labor? There were were distinctions based on the division of labor. And we sat probably, as a sales agent, I I sat probably in a pretty good place because because of the bonuses involved. Um, But what I will say is, 
I, I became very disillusioned over the first couple of years. Like it started out, it was fine. I never drank the Kool-Aid, but I mean, I did believe in the hardware I was selling. I was like, this is actually good stuff. You know, like it's the computers were compared to what was on the market. They were very good, but, you know, they were overpriced. But I mean, it was a fully, how you say, vertically integrated mm -hmm, system mm -hmm. where it's hardware, software, it's everything like top to bottom. Apple owned it all. Same uh, model kind of today, right? Oh, exa it's exactly. meant to be just like plug and play. Yeah, exact same model today. And I, I was like, oh, this is a good solution. And um, anyway, I was in there and I noticed like they were hiring and hiring and hiring. And uh, they start you off and like, uh, I think in like my first month or whatever, I was like selling iPods or something for just like, the tr <laughs> while they're training you, they're like, we are mm -hmm. desperate on the phone lines because it's like, these iPods are like flying off the shelves. So they put you over to like the iPod team where you have to fucking sell whatever. You don't know what you're talking about, but you're selling iPods, so it doesn't really matter. And um, eventually you move on up to move Are up. you calling a store to sell an iPod? Are you going to call oh, households? No, no, house, no you, you never make outbound calls. It's like right. everybody's calling you. So small, okay. medium businesses, schools okay. gotcha. uh, and consumers are calling you. So you're like, but what you're doing is you're pushing the beyond the box stuff. So you're pushing all right. these like care plans and software and all this sort of nonsense. So anyway, coming to the end of my time there, I, I really, I was very good at sales. Like I, I, I was really good at sales. Like I sold, mm -hmm. like I was always, I was like at one stage, I was top five in the world for my like bracket of sales agent. They had like a whole competition. I won like, I won like five star, a five star holiday. I won like, you know, prizes for being really good at my job but I was entirely miserable. You know, at the time I was in a band and I thought it was cool for five minutes. Um, you know, hence the motorbike and the car, right. and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And um, so I, uh, I remember one of my first meetings, this is really funny. And uh, there's a discrepancy between obviously the currencies. Uh, so euros, we were selling in euros and uh, the United States were selling in dollars. And what would happen was uh, it wasn't like hyper volatile, but it was a little bit volatile and it tended mm. to shift so that the euro market was paying far, far more mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the same product. Mm -hmm. And all of our targets were in dollars. Mm -hmm. So I remember one of our first sales meetings, and this is like with the, the global head of Apple Store. I'm not going to name him. Um, and he came in and he was like, he gave this grand explanation as to why they were using like a leveling tactic or like a basically explained that they were going to use like a a set currency rate for like a six month window so that the euro value would be locked in to whatever the dollar value was at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, um and I was like total greenhorn, but I still put up my hand like this is like a whole big room of people. And I am like literally <laughs> the least say, to say I'm the least senior person. I'm like the most plebish of the plebs. Mm -hmm. I put up my hand. I was like, but Apple is getting this money anyway. My point was like, you're not changing the money to the consumer. Right. You're literally just the benefit that we get from it as a sales crew. Right. You're taking that benefit from us and literally right. returning it directly to the company. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I know I'm not an idiot. Like I know, nobody has said anything. <laughs> and it was like, there was kind of silence from the front of the room. And um, people were looking at me like, oh, we don't question this guy. And I was like, okay, whatever. But I didn't know you don't question this guy. I remember that. And that was the beginning of me kind of like, you know, constantly butting heads with management and being kind of like, like I understood, for example, I understood the commission system and all of that stuff. And I used to like, play the numbers sometimes I've, there was one time like I, I'll give you an example of what was probably the last straw with them that like kind of they kind of forced me out after it like like I, I left but like <laughs> persona non gratis I was absolutely persona non gratis so basically what happened was they, they introduced this commission system where they put the targets like almost beyond reach right so this right. is like a, f- a few years in I was doing very good, probably getting a bit too big for my boots. And I understood the commission, uh, the commission structure like better than mm. anybody. And I knew exactly what I had to sell to make good money, etc. And they introduced this tactic of trying to get people to sell more software, trying to get people to sell more like warranties and all this sort of bullshit. Right. And um, so they it, like a quarter of our entire commission payments would be based or like a quarter of our of a multiple of our entire commission payments were based upon this. So I worked it out that if literally I didn't sell any computers and it was a, as a percentage of your total sales, if you sold X amount, mm-hmm. you'd get X amount of a bonus that multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. So I, I worked it out that if I didn't sell any computers in the month at all, but sold tons of software, I would make multiples more what anybody else <laughs> made in commission. So literally, I just spend the whole month going, yeah, I'll sell you like uh, a warranty or I'll sell you whatever, but I would pass on all the sales of the hardware right. to my friends. And they'd be like, oh, what a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else was like struggling to meet their targets. And they're like, Mick has just passed me on like a 20 grand order. I'm like, okay, right. yeah, whatever. And uh, sure, sure enough, at the end of the month, I made more money than anybody. And everybody looks at my, my figures and I had literally made like 5% of my target. <laughs> But like the, this was me. This is like one man against the system. I, I I remember like probably like one of the last straws. I wrote a really. I hope I've kept it somewhere. I wrote a really long letter to Steve Jobs, a long email to Steve Jobs because I was fucking raging. It had come to like Christmas time, and for Christmas, Apple decided to give everybody a fucking iPod, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the one bunch of people that didn't give an iPod were the iPod sales team, who were all uh, contractors. Right. And, and also at the time where we were in our campus in Cork, our area was like an old part of an old building. There was literally a leak in the roof. Right. Uh, like you're talking about like the biggest tech company in the world now had a leak in the roof. And there was like loads of like really irritating, stupid problems in the building. And some of our management was not up to scratch. And they weren't giving iPods to the iPod salespeople who had been working their asses off like six days a week, skipping holidays, all this kind of bullshit. So I wrote a long email to Steve Jobs. And what was funny was, within the week, all of the iPod staff got their iPods. So you think the man read it? No response came. No response came. Well, I'll, and I'll, I, had, I had HR talking to me. Are you happy here, Mick? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you something. Did that email also tell him 
that should he get cancer, he should try drinking antioxidant juice oh, and kind of just ride it out. Because if so, then I think we know you did get through to him. <laughs> oh, poor old Steve. What a numpty. Um, bless him and his ways. Uh He's gone now and I'm no longer in Apple. And to be honest, like I, I took it like a 50% pay cut to go like hump musical equipment around and wind cables in the opera house. But I was 100% happier in my life. You yeah, know, yeah. like I had talked about like unionizing staff and everything while I was I was there and they gave me the nickname Red Mick. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, am I really that kind of person? So, yeah, Red Mick, it stuck like good man. I, I, I'm with the. Cork Cosmos now the baseball team my jersey next season is Miguel Rojo 17 it's <laughs> <laughs> oh, a badge of honour it's a badge of honour they seemed happy enough to arbitrage all your commissions but then when you try to work their system against them all of a sudden oh not happy at all not Look, so to, happy. to be honest we had, a, we had a really good um, we had a really good manager at one stage and uh his whole idea was exactly what they're doing now in sales in Apple. Uh, like he was like, we shouldn't be like pushing the hard sell on the sales teams. There should be like customer service people who are mm. brand evangelists who you come in and they say nice things, but it, they're not incentivized to sell. They're just incentivized to give you all the good and wonderful mm. details. And, you know, they're not trying to make the sale and get people off the phone. It's not like Glengarry Glen Ross. It's more like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to compare it to. Like Apple is now. Uh, whereas with us, it was Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Like it was like you go in and you have to own your numbers and you have to stand up in front of people and say, you know, here's the reasons I sucked at this or was good it's at this. the uh, evolution of capital, right? Now they just want you to just plant the seed. Yeah. Nudge them and yeah. they will do what we want one day. But you Oof. cannot be so overt. Allow them to... Let build think. their own build their own prison where they will keep watch on themselves for us. That's the ultimate form of consent and domination, you know. Yeah. Um yeah, you know, speaking of Apple, I was thinking this it's reminded me. You know, in, in you know how in like Forrest Gump there's like he shows up at all moments in history and that's kind of part of the the, yeah. the whatever, the narrative storytelling in the gig. I was thinking like that because I was reading this book on McKinsey. And I yeah. think, Your favorite I think people. like, <laughs> yeah, like they're kind of just like, you could do the same thing, but you know, they just, they do just like show up at these very momentous stages and ruptures in history. And you're just like, oh, who's that fellow in the suit? We don't know, but there he is again. And, uh, cause I was reading one of their guys did this study in like the fifties or no, it might've been a little bit later. It was probably early seventies where they found like the wage being paid to labor was growing faster than the wages accruing to management and to the owners of the business. Okay. And this like caught capital unbeknownst at the time and, and triggered this like fundamental transformation in executive compensation. And so like from this paper that this McKinsey guy wrote, all of a sudden you get like the explosion, like the exponential kind of explosion in, in how executives are paid and, and, and kind of in, you know, the distribution of, of income, like the labor share of income versus the profit share, which goes to capital. And it was just like, feck, this one fellow from McKinsey right there at day one. And I feel like you could probably 
track them. Like I'm sure there was some guy with like Pinochet looking out on the balcony that, you know, first day after he's seized power in Chile and you're like, ah, Mr. McKinsey again. <laughs> and you can kind of just like do a Forrest Gump thing with these motherfuckers. Uh, um, yeah. We were actually kind of talking about this one during the week. I was driving Jack to school. Uh, Look, I'll I'll confess, I was probably, I wasn't going to be late for school with him, but it was only going to be barely on time. So I was probably going a little bit fast and I I was driving down a country road um, and I met another car driving down the country road and clipped wing mirrors and actually kind of, you know, bit of a fender Mm -hmm. bender, not like a bad crash at all, but just a little bit of a scratch. So um, I got out and he was very nice and Jack was in the back of the car on his way to school and he was just laughing his head off. He was like banging on the window and making faces at both of us. Meanwhile, I was like, how much, I was like, how much responsibility am I supposed to take at this point in time for this accident? And he, and the guy said to me, like, it's be fair, he was pulled right in. Like he was, he was like going pretty slow and he was pulled right in and I was coming around the bend and I was like, oh shit, I'm a little bit on his side. So I wasn't going fast because it's a crazy, it's a crazy narrow, whatever, yeah. but it was a frosty morning and I just like slipped and I just hit him a little bit, like just took his wing mirror off and tiny scratch on the front of his car, but like he was driving a new BMW mm. and he got out and he looked at his car and he went, shit, I just got it fixed. <laughs> <laughs> and then he looked at me and he said, Ah, Jesus. And I said, uh, oh, yeah, I was like, I was thinking to myself, do I just say, you know, fess up and say, yeah, that one's all on me. But he was so nice. He was so like, he was so genuine. He said, oh, sure, is your car all right? And he went up to look at my car and he was like, I don't see any mark on your car at all. I was like, how did that happen? <laughs> so anyway, we had a chat and exchanged insurance details. And um, I called my insurance company and it, I called FBD. And I said, look, lads, I'm going to say, I'm definitely 70 to 80% responsible for this. I know you're recording the call, but uh, yeah, I, this one's kind of on me. So they said, look, we'll cover the costs. And sure enough, he rang them a little bit later and, you know, they were able Confirmed to- Confirmed that you were indeed 70 to 80% responsible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, there's no 70 to 80%. It's just like, it's on me or it's on him. So right. yeah, they're paying out, but my, whatever, my, my um, no claims bonus is covered or whatever. So it's not the end of the world, but- that got me to thinking about the insurance industry yeah. and FBD, like uh, my insurance premium since I came, like uh, my no claims insurance is insured, if you know what I mean. So my no claims bonus is insured so that I, I have two claims really in two years over two in a two year window. I have, I have two claims before it tanks my no claims bonus, mm-hmm. um, which is fine because my insurance premiums are pretty good now, considering I have a provisional or a, a driver's permit yank driving the car, uh, my mm-hmm. wife. So my my premium isn't like super low anyway. But uh, basically the insurance companies were all, there was a bunch of insurance companies in Ireland investigated for basically being like involved in price fixing. The, mm-hmm. the profits were going up, 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 and the premiums were not coming down, down, down. And like it was kind of anti-competitive and Mm -hmm. FBD were raided. They raided a bunch of offices to try and find evidence. And I'm sure nothing will come of it. But uh, you made the point that uh, there's kind of an organic price fixing happening in the United States, thanks to uh, consultants. Yeah, the management consultants kind of um, 
they add a layer of plausible deniability. But, you know, to the extent that their job is to kind of gather intelligence on a market and then advise executives on on how they're both supposed to change their kind of externally oriented performance and then how they pay their, their own workers and control costs and everything. And to the extent that these firms work for all of the, the consulting firms yeah. work for every player in the market, then they can tell you, like, I don't know, this toothpaste company is going to be charging two ninety nine. So you probably want to be in the same area, you know. And then the executive don't have to get on the get on the horn and, and kind of fix price in the old fashioned way. But yeah. it's um, I was thinking when you brought up um, Jackie's driving, the only image I have in my head is. Uh, well, this is going to get dark, but it's not dark originally. You, you know when Michael Corleone is teaching his Italian wife to drive in the yard? And she's like, Michael, da, da, da. Is that kind of how it happened? Or no? No, no. Uh, Jackie doesn't like... Um, <clears throat> when Jackie's doing a lesson, she does it like external to me. She doesn't want me around. Uh-huh. And when, I, when I sit in the car, I have to be entirely calm. I and see. occasionally... Maybe I suggest something, but the less I say in the car, the better. And she's very calm. She's she's a very calm person. But like sometimes I just have to be like, drive it on a bit there, Jackie. You know, as in like fucking hurry up. There's like 20 cars behind us, you know, drive it on. But I'm going the speed limit, Mick. Ah, drive it on a bit there, you know. <laughs> well, I don't know that you'll have a leg to stand on now after your latest incident here. And then what's really funny, like uh, I've, I'm not going to like sing the praises of my wife too much here but like the average I'd say the average partner when their husband comes back in and says oh I had a bit of a scrape with the car (laughs) they go out and they look at the car and go oh Jason you did a right job on it all right or they go like oh it's not too bad Jackie was like okay like didn't even look (laughs) at the fucking car didn't even like think to go out and look at the car doesn't care doesn't care it's like is the insurance covering it yeah um so yeah, so I'm I'm because there's already a claim against me. I'm getting the car fixed entirely on insurance. I'm letting them pay for the the whole lot, you know. That's yeah. pretty good. Well, for the, I my you know my my health insurance right now with um, Blue Cross Blue Shield purchased through Obamacare through yeah. the open window. So my premiums have gone up, and they'll be about a hundred and nine dollars a month, which isn't too bad, you might say. No, it's not bad. However, my deductible is ten thousand dollars. <laughs> so, for those who don't know what a deductible means, because they're it's in an Ireland, excess. we call it an Europe. excess. Yeah, yeah. So I have to cover the first ten G's of medical service before they cover anything, which is uh, you can understand why people did not rise up to the streets to defend Obamacare because it had transformed health care and health services for this country. You know, it's like... Oh, it's a bit of a sham, really. Actually, you, you wrote a bit about... Um, you wrote a bit about, about Obama in, the, in, in your newsletter, which was very good this week. I enjoyed it very much. So um, I think maybe it's time for our, our weekly segment. What do you think? <laughs> Born on Barack Obama. <laughs> this is our weekly segment called Colin Shits on Barry. Right. Well, he's his latest thing. He's he's uh, he's in the media and he's um, he's advising, condescending, deigning 
to tell, I guess, the activists that have been pushing what they are saying, defund the police is kind of one of the policy solutions. And yes, I suppose it's a slogan, but it's more of a policy solution. They're saying our cops kill lots of people. Um, yeah. This seems to have a materialist cause, meaning they have enormous budgets and weapons, and then they have a legal system which unconditionally protects them. Yeah, And I suppose to reduce the amount of violence they do, one might want to affect their kind of material um, conditions or, yeah, uh, you know, it seems fairly straightforward in getting, getting to the, the heart of the problem. Um, but he, he's been like, oh, this is alienating lots of people and it's, uh, you know, costing us uh, all elections and whatever Trying to get laid. neighborhoods. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it is affecting him with the long-legged socialist or perhaps the ethereal yeah. bisexual. But regardless, uh, it's just like it's really it's really weird. I mean, so obviously, like, fair play to him in 2008, an yep. enormous victory. Yeah. Blew the, blew the tires off of them. Yeah. Uh, had the whole world in his, in his palm of his hand, right? Yeah. But then they pretty much lost after that everything, right? They lost the House. They lost the Senate. Yeah. Uh, then they lost the presidency to a complete buffoon. Yeah. Um, and now they've barely, just barely scraped back under his, like, you know, uh, guidance and stewardship. And, and so it's like, one, I'm, I'm not sure why we should be taking strategic lessons um, from you in the first place. Two... It's unclear to me why uh, a, an organizer or an activist would um, take into consideration the effects of their actions on some like conservative blue dog Democrat in West Virginia. I'm not sure that they share the same interests as that person. So why would they care, especially given that those same actors uh, have never done anything to um, improve the situation that has brought these people to the streets in the first place? Yeah. You know, and... Uh, there was a third point I had, but I'm forgetting it right now. But it certainly had you, also pissed me off. <laughs> yeah, look, you 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 were quoting your man Ryan Cooper. Yeah. In the newsletter, and he really, uh, God, he comes in hard in the in the post crash environment. Like, yeah. I I I actually I remember it really really well. I I remember him getting elected. Things had gone to absolute doo-doo in the United States it was clear that like whatever financial regulators or controllers you had were like asleep at the wheel and it was time for major reform it was time for like bankers to go to jail mm-hmm. and what happened was just like the opposite of that like it, they just well, like gave the Obama, money to the banks in Obama's words you know, there were... In there Obama's were those... words, don't make someone else clean up your mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he didn't want to create... Uh, I think what he has presented it as is that radical action would have um, resulted in social violence, an upturning of the, the order. And this is when he kind of says the part he's not supposed to say out loud. So it's like, what do you mean by like an upending of the order? Presumably... 
you might have actually reduced the power of kind of financial interests to control the society, and that wasn't something you were willing to do. Yeah. Um, but it, I guess to go back to the the previous thing, because I just remembered my third point. It's like so him and all these all the libs, right? They they have this. They articulate constantly this like Whig history of the civil rights movement, yeah. where it, like the civil rights movement was like a bunch of really nice guys saying kumbaya, and all the white people were like mostly backing them, you know. And it was just like it was this march to freedom because they were like polite and they worked within the system and they trusted uh, the elected officials. And then we got to this point today, and that's like that's the lessons need to be learned that like. You just you need to trust and you need to respect propriety and don't ask for too much because you might alienate people and you need those allies. And it's just like that's so demonstrably false and ahistorical. And like anyone who read for like 15 minutes on Dr. King or anyone else knew that like the amount of resistance all of American society put up against these people pretty much and fought them tooth and nail. And like they won because they were fighting a war, not with guns, but a war, and they treated it like a war. And they yeah. they took they took on enemies, and they took on recognizing that there's like fundamental conflicts in this society, and you have to be on one side of it, you know. And like similarly with anyone who's you know involved with BLM or anything else today, they're like, my obligation is not to like help some normie Democrat get into office. My obligation is to do what's right and to fight something that I know is right. And if that means alienating people right now or whatever it is, that's what has to be done because it's right. And because if you don't fight these fights, nothing changes. You know what I mean? Like I'm not, you know, when, when police stations burn down, you do get a quicker response than when you're just like doing the pussy headed match march you know the women's march where everyone's wearing pink hats like what that didn't do anything because it, it's non-threatening you know yeah. and that's there's just Absolutely. like uh i mean there's a kind of malcolm yeah. x existed for a reason yeah but you even they I mean? you they use malcolm x to present king as if he was like a normie obama and it's like no king was a radical an anti-imperialist and a socialist like the, the, he was you know what i mean like the, <laughs> he's not just like, uh, you know, he's like this, they just make him this rhetorical figure. And it's like, well, he said that I had a dream speech when it was like black kids and white kids would hold hands. So I think he was pretty much just like, he just wanted peace. And it's like, he wanted, he wanted justice. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he fought for justice. And those are like vastly different things. But this is like um, the kind of lib inheritance of like Whig history. This is just how they like recall events and try to discipline and kind of put people into these uh, these kind of feckless uh, you know positions where you can't actually do anything. You know, and it, it's um, it's not working anymore. I don't know that people buy it. I heard uh, Phil Oaks uh, loved me. I'm a liberal for the first time only a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I sent it to you and I was like, Jesus Christ, like this is whatever, 1960s. Mm -hmm. And it's so perfect for today. Mm -hmm. It's so perfect. It's like, you know, don't go too far now. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's really it. That's the whole thing is like, oh, look, you know, your, 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 your wallpaper Democrat will get in there and, and we'll fight our culture war peacefully. 
Um, and, you know, Ellen Page will be allowed to be Elliot Page, but yeah. like, don't pay the workers a fair wage. <laughs> like, yeah. That's too much to ask for. <laughs> it's too no, much it's, to ask for. And it's even, um, I'll bring this, not that it's uh, directly related, but it's on the topic of LBGTQ. Uh, so the the prospective um, appoint, appointment to be the director of the Office of Management and Budget is this woman, Neera Tandon, who is like a deep, deep cut Clinton aide, like long time Clinton aide. She's currently the president of the Center for American Progress, which is the Clinton kind of founded, John Podesta founded uh, think tank in DC. And she's a Twitter addict. Oh my God. Yeah. And she's like tried to get so many people fired from their publications for like making fun of her on Twitter. She's like really the most like thin skinned, seems kind of stupid, but like went to Yale Law School or something. So people, I don't know. She's incapable of articulating like any complex sentence. Um, but I think her first her first appearance on the silver screen was when she's sitting behind Hillary Clinton as Hillary makes the case for why marriage is between a man and a woman. And I'm just like, you know, and, and it's just like, so she's like, listen, it's like the foundation of how we socialize our children, of how we maintain our social order. It is based on this institution of marriage. And I'm just like, it's amazing, like how like deeply like felt and like existential she made it, you know. And then like, oh my god, like you know? look, I I got I got so much grief uh, from my American liberal, we'll say relatives and and friends and and Hillary lovers when I made the point that like Hillary, and these are people who are part of the LGBT community even. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I was like, Hillary was like one of the last people to come mm-hmm. to the party. Like oh, yeah. Bernie Sanders was having a march in flipping like. <laughs> 1967 or something. Yeah. Well, no, no. Like he actually organized a gay pride march in Vermont. And where was he mayor again? Or he was the mayor Burlington. of Burlington. And I like whatever, maybe he didn't do the best. I don't know. Like people go, oh, he didn't do a great job here, there, whatever. I don't, I don't care. Like, but he organized a gay pride march in like the early 80s or something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's like when somebody doesn't change their, like you can tell how true somebody is mm-hmm. to a cause when they, when they, either when they never change their message or when their message morphs only slowly as new information uh, mm-hmm. arrives. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like as new information arrives, oh, here's some new information. I'll change my message. Whereas Hillary Clinton was like, oh, it is. Oh, my God, it's politically expedient to be like an ally. Um, I'm going to do that. And yet, like. All the gay guys in New York City were like, we're going to vote for Hillary. It's like, yeah. what is your attraction to this? Like this Libya bombing sack of shit. You know, <laughs> I don't. Sorry, that's cruel. Uh, but like, that's it. Um, I don't get it. Like consistent politicians, like they've, they've, like Bernie is so consistent. I'm not going to like totally jump on the Bernie bus now, but like he's so consistent. He's so consistent. His messages are so consistent. Biden voted for the goddamn Iraq War, right? And yes, he not only not only voted for it, he like whipped for it. 
in the Senate. Like he was like a huge part of selling the war. You know yeah. what I mean? And uh, he showed. Look, I, I, we discussed this in, in a pre, either in a previous podcast or an unreleased episode. Yeah, but he showed some re- remorse for that. Yeah. Or at least he showed some political remorse for it because it is expedient to do so now. Mm-hmm. But like, I just want to spell this out to any American listeners. The entire world knew that the Iraq war was a load of fabricated nonsense. Like mm-hmm. everybody knew, like nobody believed that there were weapons of mass destruction. There were protests on the streets in every countries country in the world in much, every yeah. country in the world I just want Americans to know that that everybody looked at this as war criminality basically well to be clear Tony Blair did not okay and uh, I think the Australians came along for the ride too because they're just uh, they're it was like just a little a Israel bu- they're a little Israel I'll tell you it was a, a bunch of little lapdogs came along in the coalition of coalition of the willing because it was like it was never going to be NATO or right. or the e, or the the UN or it was never going to be anything like that so it was like they called them the coalition of the willing and and you may have noticed that like Spain came along for the ride briefly until mm-hmm. um, some bad shit happened in Spain mm-hmm. and then Spain said well maybe the price is too high our yeah. people didn't want us to go to this war and now as a result of us being in this war we are facing debts on Spanish soil. Maybe we ought to get our fucking asses out of there. And it's like, was well, that oil the, money uh, worth it? Was the oil money worth it? You know? That's the uh, the hilarious inverted causality that always... So it's like, oh, you know, yeah. the, the terrorists did eventually come after you, Spain, but it wasn't just for random shits and giggles, you know? It was because it, they you weren't, did something... <laughs> Yeah, they weren't attacking your way of. They didn't hate your way of life because that's the American like oh, one. It's like yeah. they're they're it's our way of life that they hate. No, they just hate the fact that you're supplying weapons to <laughs> somebody who carpet bombs their city every night. It's like yeah. they don't hate your way of life. That's what they hate. They they don't hate that. They hate the you know. There's there's a real causality, and like you talk about this inverse causality of like yeah. oh yeah the the twin towers were blown up because. They just hate Americans. That yeah. is not the case. And then it, that was the first act in this in this conflict. And therefore, yeah. we were, it was a defensive uh, reaction yeah. on the part of the United States. You know, uh, I should take, because we, we cut the last episode because it was just too raw. Okay. <laughs> but uh, in that one, we were talking about the first Gulf War. And I, I just say, it, as in comparison to how they sold second Gulf War, the first one was actually more wacky in some ways and people don't quite know this. Like the second one, you know, they did claim like Saddam was trying to buy yellow cake, which was like enriched uranium in like Uganda and stuff. So like obviously there's a lot of rich, rich storytelling in the second (laughs) Gulf War. But in the first one, the Kuwaiti ambassador, okay, to D.C., had his daughter go to Congress, okay? His daughter who lives in D.C. and is the rich, you know, rich heiress, essentially. She's a Of an oil out. state, of, of a yeah. petrol state in the Middle East. Yeah, I'm imagining yeah, and, the type here. And so she, like, puts on a, a simple hijab and goes before all these elected officials and presents herself as a Kuwaiti nurse who somehow has gotten to the United States. We don't know how. But she's just some random Kuwaiti nurse who then tar- starts testifying about how Iraqi soldiers, how she saw them 
in the hospitals with their bayonets going to incubators in the uh, what's the what's the unit where they hold the the, the kind of preemie babies the NICU the neonatal ICU they're yeah. going in with incubators and murdering these babies which is just like <laughs> And then, and nobody, nobody is like, hold on, wait. I saw that woman at the Four Seasons yesterday. Who is? What? Wait, what? No one. You mean you mean the gardening? You mean the garden? (laughs) The garden center? No, the hotel. (laughs) Yeah, there's just like there's nothing. There's nothing. Um, And so I mean, like, I don't know. (laughs) It's really crazy what they get away with. Like, it's really shocking. Uh, oh, like it's we like we laugh about it now. We're like, you know, there are a million dead Iraqis since, or, or more, I'm sure mm-hmm. by now since since that whole thing kicked off in 2003. Um, I mean, obviously there was like so part of like civil wars and ISIS and all the stuff that followed, but mm-hmm. like the initial invasion, you lost a bunch of American troops, you lost a bunch of Iraqis, you had all sorts of terrible things happen for a long, long time, and. It's, it's not done with yet. Iraq, is, Iraq no. is still a bit of a mess. Well, yeah, and what's really sad, and this isn't meant to be a shot at Ireland. It's just meant to give a, um, a kind of comparative point, uh, an anchor point, so, you can, so people can understand. Um, prior to the Iran-Iraq war, yeah. Iraq's like level of development and like, you know, the UN kind of indicators, whatever, everything from education to, you know, your, your infrastructure, your water systems, all this kind of stuff was higher than Ireland. It was higher than like everyone that wasn't like Northern Europe kind of rich, you know, like yeah. it, it was like a higher and it wasn't like, yeah, they, they, a lot of this was financed by, like by Gulf, uh, by oil sales and kind of by a petrol economy, but it was like huge agricultural land. Very diversified economy. My own aunt, no. my my own aunt, um, who I love very much, uh, lived in Bag- lived in Baghdad and mm-hmm. worked in Baghdad. Uh, radiographer mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. on the Kinsler side of the family lived yeah. in Baghdad and was perfectly happy. And this was, I guess, early to mid eighties, I suppose. Yeah. And she enjoyed her time there in Baghdad. Yeah. So like. You know, there's a there's a selling that, that like, and I'm sure Iran seems to be the same kind. Like the 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 rhetoric around Iran seems to be quite similar. Like where it's like, oh, they're com- you imagine mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. completely backward, crushed mm-hmm. place, and then mm-hmm. yeah, anybody who goes there is like, oh my god, the people were so friendly, and I had such a wonderful time, and I didn't feel like I was, you know, living no. in. Uh, I didn't feel like I was living in North Korea. And now, yeah. in, interesting, like, we'll go to North Korea now, and North Korea will be, oh, my God, it actually is a utopia. <laughs> we're, we're being sold a pup. It's actually the way to live. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for real, I think it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's kind of so um, purposefully constructed. Yeah. In kind, you know, and the... the the kind of imagery and the, the mythology and all the things that you kind of uh, mobilize to other yeah. a country, a people, whatever, you know, you know, in the case of the Middle East, it wasn't just that they were backward. That's like the kind of current thing, you know, so now because we're all lib and woke, 
right? You need to go into Afghanistan to save the women because the women are, are being oppressed, right? So that's, that's the mobilizing, that's the humanitarian logic for why we need, we need to save them. Um, you know, in the past though, it used to be like the Arabs were like hypersexualized. you know what I mean? It was like, that was kind of the imagery in like the 18th century and all this kind of stuff. But whatever it was, it was then, you know, Europe was kind of this Puritan, um, you know, Victorian, whatever it was, the place of, of ethics and noblemen, whereas these like kind of oily skinned, you know, yeah. Arabs oh, yeah, yeah. Were, you But that's, know, that's how the image, I've seen the image, you know? I've seen the image put out there in like the, whatever, this is the four white feathers or what, mm-hmm. like it's old movies, you know, mm-hmm. it was like uh, these, these, you know, mm-hmm. these greasy robed, you know, yeah. Middle Eastern men chasing, stealing the women, <laughs> yeah. you know. And yeah, it's just me, by the way. uh, I don't see you doing any better in the booty department. (laughs) (laughs) There he is. Sorry, sorry. There's our man. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, yeah. Look, I, I, anyway, Joe Biden. But sure, Joe Biden would have been part of that first. I'm going to say Joe Biden would have been part of that first Iraq war. Joe Biden would have been part of the bloody Vietnam War. <laughs> Are you yeah. sure? Was he there? Was he there for the Civil War as well? <laughs> <laughs> Look, he's extremely experienced. Okay, he's seen, he's seen a lot of stuff. Yeah, um, he, he still hasn't figured out that, like, uh, you know, your dog doesn't throw the ball to you; you throw your ball to the dog. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Yeah, what do you do? He broke his foot or something, right? Yeah, bro- broke his foot playing with his dog. Like, okay. Ah, look. You suspect uh, foul play? <laughs> you think this was a, a try on his life because he's a Catholic, like JFK? And they're trying to take out another Catholic before he can get to the heights of power? Ah, uh, look. We Irish, we Irish are, go- are going to... I say we... There's an Irish cohort that's going to very much enjoy uh, kicking, uh, kissing uh, Biden's butt. Uh, like, oh, I'm sure you will. You know, he, uh, look, he seems like a, a general, generally affable guy, and yeah. he is, he's very proud of his Irish heritage, and which is which is overstated, but he is very proud of it. <laughs> oh, he's so over proud of it. Like he's so he, like he. You saw that first comment he made when the BBC yeah. went to him after he got elected. You know, have yeah. you got a word for the BBC? And he just turned around and said, "I'm Irish." <laughs> <laughs> Which is gold, really. Um, but, you know, his, his family in Mayo are the Blewett family. And uh, plumbers and also one of his cousins, actually. Here's, here's one for you. One of his cousins is actually a podcaster. And she has a, a podcast with Tommy Tiernan and Hector O'Hockagon. And it's actually wow. a wonderful podcast. And she is really funny on it. So she's just like a country girl who has met Joe Biden and has you know, traveled in limousines with him and like done mm-hmm. the, you know, he's has had the five star treatment and has been to the White House and whatnot. And I'm sure she'll get to do it again. But anyway, yeah. I hope she, she can get her fingertips in one of those sweet, sweet Ukrainian oil deals like his, <laughs> like his son. She should start trading on that name. Get herself a board seat. Why not? Oh, come here in your newsletter. Look, funniest thing I saw was... Um, your man, Hungarian. what's his name? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, fucking uh, Yosef, what's his name? Shire. Sh- Shire. Something, I don't know. Something, something silly. <laughs> so basically, right, just to like kind of set the scene, because I don't know all the ins and outs of it and I'm not like, you know, the most well up. So 
MEP, right, one of Orban's boys, who's like hardcore right-wing Hungarian. Uh, this guy preached against gay marriage, well, is like really ultra-conservative, ultra-right-wing, ultra-anti-LGBT, all of those things. And as it turns out, super repressed. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, man! I read, I read the story. I read, I read. <laughs> I Sounded read. like quite a party. <laughs> oh my, oh my God! Oh, oh, man! I'm not going to any more of these bullshit Puno parties. <laughs> <laughs> and that is what Mr. Shire said after. So basically, he's he's in Brussels, right? He's an MEP. Um, he stands up and whinges to the European Parliament all the time about you know protocols, and I like fair enough. I'm okay with that, but um. Him being one of Orban's boys, it's like, whatever, not ideal. I, it's, but anyway, so he preaches morality and he has discovered, like, we'll, we'll, we'll do like a, a Pulp Fiction here. So like the, the, the <laughs> he's discovered with bloody hands in the nip on a roof in Brussels, basically <laughs> wearing just a backpack with bloody hands <laughs> by the police who, who call to investigate like a like a noise or a disruption complaint. And what they discovered was uh, 25 men having an orgy in the, in the city. And this guy, and like, I'm like, whatever you want to do with consenting adults, it doesn't matter. I don't care. You know, just keep the noise down for your neighbours. Right, and it's COVID, so you're not supposed to be gathering in that Exactly. Many. It's COVID times. Like, come they on. They probably should have kept it to eight or whatever the rule is. Kept it to eight worn face masks. I'm like, maybe they were wearing face masks anyway. Who knows? Anyway, so this guy jumps out the window and climbs along a roof and like across some guttering and it's found by the police. And so they're like, he has no identification. So they're like, this guy could be anything. So they bring him back to the cop shop and he's like, look, I'm an MEP. So they return him to his accommodation where he's able to like present his passport and the, hilar and the hilarity ensues. Yeah. <laughs> Oh wrong place God. at the wrong time sometimes. <laughs> Make it happen to all of us, you know? And he was just passing by and one thing led to another. His clothes were off. He was on a roof. But like, he's a married guy. He's a married guy who, who like, first of all, campaigned against abortion rights in Hungary, campaigned against uh, legalizing same-sex marriage in Hungary, and is, is good buddies with the, the fucking, the leader of, like, the... Fidesz parliamentary group. His name's uh, Mate uh, Koshish, right? So Koshish is another little fucker, right? He's in his like late thirties, maybe early forties. Mm -hmm. And while we like, not that we're shocked by this MEP story, like of course the hyper conservative anti-gay you know, whatever, is a repressed gay person. It's okay to be gay, right. but it's not okay to be a hypocrite. <laughs> but uh, his buddy back in Hungary, himself and his buddy back in Hungary, there was actually a journalist who came out in... Was she a journalist or uh, maybe she was just like women's rights advocate or whatever, back in 2015, actually outed both of them. This guy is the, is the mayor of some part of Budapest. The guy, Mate Kosish, is like the mayor of a section of Budapest uh, and the leader of the Fidesz parliamentary group, right? Mm -hmm. um, and hater of gypsies. He called them animals and said they shouldn't exist. Um, oh, hater of the homeless. He like, um, what did he do? 
homeless people who weren't allowed to smoke or drink on the street or whatever. Like he was trying to like exterminate the homeless, exterminate the gypsies, married as well, and also anti-gay uh, and mm-hmm. anti-abortion. And he was outed in 2015 as gay as well. The two boys were outed as gay and he took it to court. So I suppose Yosef Shire, who got caught in Brussels, when he didn't take it to court, we should have known something was up. And uh, here's the interesting thing. Like, this is what's really funny. So so when Matej Kosic took this lady to to court about saying that he was gay, Mm. uh, initially he won and like that she had libeled him or whatever mm-hmm. but then he lost an appeal because he wasn't able to prove that being uh, accused of being gay was a bad thing <laughs> it's like what's so bad about that <laughs> yeah. yeah lady lady law justice prevails in the it, end it did prevail in the end but that's too funny like to be honest look Hungary needs a good kick in the arse from the EU. I, I don't know yeah, how it's it does, going yeah. to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen there. But like, I can't go on that way. I mean, you know, all this right wing shit, it just has to be. You can't say it has to be clamped down on because like, if that's what the populace wants, like that's what the populace wants. But like, you have to do it within the European constitution, you know, to a certain extent, to a certain extent, to the nth extent, you have to do it within the European constitution, whatever laws you're going to make or rules you're going to make. I mean, there's no place for like, you know, like authoritarian theocracies in Europe, you know, like it's just not. Yeah. No, and when the, the tricky thing is, is that like the EU itself, which has plenty of issues, but it is, it has been so easily kind of uh, leveraged by these like right wing populists who want to yeah. present themselves as like defending the nation against the kind of scourge of bureaucracy and all this sort of stuff. And it's um, they've kind of made a compelling sell yeah. to, to people that have been dislocated for reasons like some of which not really to do with the EU, you know, just kind of global macroeconomic change which the EU has not helped by any means but it, you know it is not the kind of driver of those shifts but it, it's just like such a coherent if if dishonest sell you know what I mean and I think this is the problem a lot of like like to the extent the EU represents a kind of liberal order this is the problem liberalism is facing right now is that like as dishonest as these right-wing people are they do have a kind of coherence in what they are selling people. And yeah. like the the counter from that, from the liberal order is, is not compelling. And it won't be compelling lest you can kind of improve the welfare of people's lives. You know, and then you can kind of get at the nonsense these folks are selling. But it's, uh, for now, it's sort of, you're in a tricky position. Um, so yeah, we'll see. Um, have you any more crack? No, I think that's about all the crack there is. Damn, I'm late for class. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Colin, I will see you soon, man. Much love. Ciao. Take care. Bye. Peace, brother.